Exponential Trust Times is the unique AI channel of trust that offers an innovative formula of mentoring at scale for youth people from all around the world. I'm Dr. Lobna Kari, Executive AI Strategy Growth Advisor and Digital Transformer for Fortune 500 and 440 for more than two decades and the President of AI Exponential Thinker. The AI Deal of Trust is a unique fair opportunity to empower young generation about trust technology and AI opportunity. In the first chapter of this series, The AI Deal of Trust, we invite female leaders with exponential AI experience dedicated to one of the most crucial area of AI ethics and trust technology. Our exponential guest today is Dr. Anima Anand Kumar, a brain professor at Caltech and a director of machine learning research at NVIDIA. She was recognized by her peers with more than 20 awards from young investigator for the Air Force and Army Research Offices to Good Tech 2018 by New York Times. She is one of the youngest female AI researcher in Silicon Valley with great faculty fellowship from great tech company as Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and more. And she is a best paper awards for many times. Please help me welcome Dr. Anima Anand Kumar. Hi, Anima. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Dr. Lovna. I, it's my pleasure to be here. And we are happy to have this nice background that uh, give us all the power of the, uh, of the, of the, you know, all this blue space. <laughs> so we are really lucky to have you today with us and honored. Thank you for joining this great discussions, common discussion about the AI deal of trust with the uh, AI exponential thinker. So as I said before, during these discussions, we will learn more about your great AI experience, AI researchers, your social involvement for AI ethics and diversity. But before going on that, uh, we are more curious to know your academic background and how you end up in these incredible positions, either as principal scientist at Amazon Web Services, but also recently, uh, these last couple of years, as a director of machine learning at NVIDIA. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've been uh, incredibly lucky to have so many mentors and supporters along the way, right? I think that's uh, very important in anyone's career to have. And uh, yeah, also lucky to be living in this current times where AI has taken off. There's endless opportunities and possibilities uh, to see the research go from foundations and theory to the real world, right? It's happened so fast. And when I got into the field, you know, I, I didn't have an idea that it would be this fast, right? What I've always kind of, uh, the way I have chosen topics or the way I have chosen my path is one of curiosity, one of well, where there are challenging problems. I'm going and looking for instances where, you know, there are uncharted territories. Right, because research is always about finding something new. Yes. And when I got into the field uh, more than a decade ago, uh, AI was, you know, not um, in anyone's radar. I mean, it was certainly there in the academic community, uh, but there were so many aspects we still needed to figure out. Right, we need to figure out uh, how to make algorithms efficient, how to scale them up, uh, what's the right compute infrastructure for that. Uh, and where is the data to train that? And now all that has come through and all that is synergized and energized to make an impact on this world. That's been an exciting journey. One of the questions that it comes to my mind, was it a dream to work in AI? Um, you know, I wanted to be a scientist always growing up. Uh, I loved math, I loved sciences, I loved engineering. Both my parents are engineers and uh, they run a, an industry back in India. So I was growing up visiting, uh, you know, the manufacturing plant, looking at all these big <laughs> machines. And uh, in fact, they were uh, one of the first in the city to 
modernize and bring uh, automated uh, manufacturing, you know, what we call computerized numerically controlled machines or CNC machines. So I got introduced to programming through this non-traditional route, you know, seeing how to control these huge machines and uh, have really precise, uh, you know, micron level manufacturing requirements. Uh, to see that uh, being done uh, to me, I, it made me realize the uh, power of programming and also the power of automation. So at that point, you know, I, AI was not <laughs> in yeah. the broader picture, right? But I knew I, I wanted to do something of the sort that would combine science, math, and engineering and go towards more automation and uh, uh, more uh, impact on this world, so. Um, the next the next topic it will be more about your exponential academic involvement so leading ai research for the best company in silicon valley is a part of your roles uh, we are impressed by your passion about teaching and academic research since you are a brand professor and co-director of uh, we name it you name it dulcet and in the department of computing and mathematical science in the california institute of technology i try to be fair that's why i I say every detail. For our audience, we we uh, we are really curious to learn about your research laboratory and what are the main projects, for sure, non-confidential one that you can share with us. Yeah, I mean, you know, at Caltech, uh, I feel like a kid in a candy store, right? Literally, there's so many problems to work on and so many of the world's experts in domains across the sciences and engineering. So having that uh, wealth of expertise, you know, makes me so energized and inspired, right? We have Nobel Prize winners, we have MacArthur Genius Award winners, and I have the privilege to, you know, collaborate with them, uh, have their mentorship, have them as my low role models, and so many amazing women as well who have uh, made such strides, you know, like Dr. Francis Arnold, who uh, is the first uh, female Nobel Prize winner at Caltech uh, and she won the prize in 2018. Uh, we have, uh, you know, across the board, so many such amazing women at Caltech and men, of course. So, uh, so that gives me the inspiration to think about, uh, you know, how AI can make an impact in all these areas, right? Uh, uh, aspects of biology, like how do we synthesize better proteins? How do we uh, discover better drugs? Uh, of course, now with the pandemic uh, that's uh, you know appended lives, this is so important, right? Our ability to quickly develop new drugs and vaccines and keep up with virus mutations. You know, you read about this every day in the news. And so it needs to now go to another regime of uh, the pace of development. You know, we can no longer afford to take decades to study <laughs> a disease yeah. and uh, take time to uh, figure out what the drug is. We are in a fast evolving and fast changing world. Uh, so that's one area where, uh, you know, I've been collaborating to think about uh, fast methods for drug discovery, like how uh, we can go to the foundations of uh, calculating quantum properties at the quantum level properties of molecules, right? Like it's energy and energy of various bonds, being able to predict how the binding happens. And that's really crucial to discover drug molecules. Wow. And one of the recent projects has been to use AI to speed this up uh, almost thousand times compared to traditional methods. And so that shows the power of AI where if we can now do fast computations, we can search this vast space of possible drugs, you know, then we can quickly get them to market and save lives, right? So that's one example that to me uh, is incredibly uh, has the potential for impact. And we are building the from the foundations of Caltech to scaling them up to these real world scenarios. And that's just one example, you know, so many other areas of sciences in seismology, Caltech uh, you know, has wealth of data and expertise and asking how we can uh, predict earthquakes and of course, right, have that early warning system that's so important. So again, the use of machine learning 
the understanding of what kind of properties we have in the physical system, you know, on the earth, how these uh, forces move. Uh, combining that with machine learning uh, again shows uh, so much promise to do better prediction. And uh, so, yeah, so so many such examples there are at Caltech. So that's where we are bringing them together in an umbrella called AI for Science. Uh, I co-founded this with uh, Professor Song Yu, who's my colleague at Caltech. And the goal is how can we synergize our efforts to have the impact of AI in all areas of sciences, right? How do we identify which problems are ready to be disrupted by AI? How do we ensure there are the right data pipelines, there's the right benchmarks? How do we bring all that together and bring people together to combine domain expertise with AI? So that's, uh, you know, I feel like I've found my life's calling through that. <laughs> You know, Anima, I, um, we invite many, many prestigious guests in this pod, in many podcasts in AI Exponential Thinker, uh, and we observe when people are so passionate about AI, we, we feel it, you know, uh, and we remark that people coming from research or even staying in research uh, but combining to cooperate words, they keep this passion, and you know. They enhance these passions and we feel it. And it's very inspiring from young people to see that AI is not only about, about data, it's about solution and there is more than data. So it's it's really something that, that is so powerful. And we just start unlocking just less, let's say less than 20% of the power of this technology, right? We have barely scratched the surface, right? And finally, AI is about people, right? Ultimately, it Every single day people. I say this. <laughs> it's for the people, right? And we want to ensure we derive the best uh, you know, benefits for humanity while ensuring uh, it's trustworthy and we minimize the dangers coming out of that. I mean, that balance is important for any technology, including AI. You, you said uh, the right word. Uh, AI is about people. Uh, in many aspects, in the aspect that it's, it's trying to understand how we work and how we do things, right? To help us do better and do fast and improve. But at the same time, the user is, a, is our people. So in both sides and in other apps aspects as well, we need to care about people every single moment. And this is why we will talk about AI ethics later as well in this discussion. So from an AI, pro, um, like you are an AI professor, uh, and from this perspective, what are the main models that tech future leaders should learn and how you engage your student to, to be innovative and creative? And I know that you are you are working too long times in this aspect. Yeah, absolutely, Lobna. Like, you know, the young people are our future, right? Uh, bringing the young generation also into this area and showing them you know, the way it has touched my soul, the way it has, you know, keeps me going. Uh, I want to uh, convey that and get them also into that uh, feeling, you know, because once uh, they understand this potential and once they're able to see the path that's in front of them, right, uh, they take it forward. That's what uh, we all aim to do, right? And that's what you're also doing with uh, the exponential thinking and uh, uh, the idea is to uh, make sure that uh, we reach out to young people and get them on a path of success. And at Caltech, uh, this is something that, uh, you know, we care a lot about. Um, it's a small place, you know, compared to other universities, we are small, but the benefit of that is it's also very well-knit. Yeah, and there are no barriers in terms of areas, right? I mean, we are collaborating so openly across such wide ranging areas. And we all have this common language of being able to speak in mathematical terms, being able to lay out the foundation. And so that way we can bridge uh, gaps across different areas. And, and the other make, important- you, you make mathematics, uh, let's say, uh, more understood as a power right because when we when like i remember myself when i was students when i i was passionate about mathematics but at the same time when i see my colleagues and my friends mathematics is so abstract for them 
So they cannot understand why we do mathematics. And I think what you are explaining is that you saw the you saw and you show the power of mathematics in a concrete way. Absolutely. And to me, like math is another language, right? And yes, if you don't know the language, you cannot appreciate its beauty. True. Right. And I think a lot of that comes from how math is taught to young kids. There needs to be reform in uh, making math enjoyable. You know, the way I got exposed to math, my grandfather was a math teacher and, you know, he would give me like puzzles. My grandmother always loved puzzles. Uh, so it was just a natural thing, you know, it wasn't <laughs> a chore to do. It wasn't just a homework to be done. Right, uh, to see that math uh, as a fun thing and then to see the math in action in terms of programming the machines that I talked about, you know, that showed me the power of math and the beauty of math. And I think, uh, you know, we lose out uh, so many talented people because in early childhood, we are not setting them up on a right foundation to view math as something fun. Correct. So the next uh, topics, it's one of the main of this theory. Uh, it's about trust technology. So from your great ex uh, experience as an AI researcher and AI builder for the high efficiency of many businesses, how, would, how can we build transparent and trust technology? Yeah, I think for any technology to be beneficial to humanity, we want to make sure there is accountability, transparency, there's trustworthy, right? And there is a dialogue among all the stakeholders, right? And that's what we need more of because uh, in the past decade, AI indeed has been in the news a lot, it's making an impact, but so much of it has come from big tech, right? And that future is not sustainable unless we bring in all different stakeholders, you know, who are the people who are affected by the introduction of this AI technology, right? And it could be a broad range. And then the thing is, if there's a wrong decision, what is the fallback? You know, yeah. is this catastrophic? Is this okay? I mean, is this an annoyance, right? And that's why we can't treat one size fits all. You know, if, you know, take face recognition, it's uh, very popular, everyone is aware. And you know it's in it's in my Siri, it's in the airports, right? Now coming up, uh, it's uh, at Nvidia when I'm trying to get into the building. So we have that in so many different use cases, but they're not all equal, right? I mean, yes, on my phone in low lighting conditions, or especially now I'm wearing a mask, it doesn't recognize it's an annoyance, right? I can go type the pin and it's okay. But on the other hand, if we put this in the hands of law enforcement and they're making uh, decisions that could be life or death because they, they mistakenly think somebody has committed criminal acts and uh, right, we've seen uh, cases of uh, right, uh, deaths happening uh, with police engagement, uh, especially with the African-American community. So we have to be very mindful there that True. an error is uh, can be a catastrophic event, and we need to treat it that way, right? We need to have then the transparency and accountability to ask, you know, how well is it doing, uh, not just at a high level accuracy, but on different groups, and that's where uh, we've seen in the past few years increased awareness on the AI bias. Right. The fact that uh, so many of our data sets that we train these models on are extremely imbalanced when it comes to darker skin tones, especially, you know, the paucity of uh, uh, black uh, people being in the data set. And that starts off a chain. Right. And then on top of it, there's algorithmic bias. You're training the models uh, to do well on the overall accuracy, which is uh, not having uh, many uh, darker skin tones in the validation data set. So ultimately you're uh, bringing in all these biases that uh, then when it's put in the real world and uh, there has been a history of, uh, uh, you know, uh, marginalization of the black community uh, that further, right, uh, amplifies those biases. 
And, and I think it, that's it's quite challenging as a topic. Like we talk about AI ethics, there's a lot of framework that exists uh, and a lot of organization are working on. Uh, but till now, as you said, we need to reinforce this part and, and not take it only uh, or see it only on from the perspective of the people who are building those models. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, as you said very well, it's in many rooms and we need to care about all these rooms, right? Absolutely. And that's where we need government regulation ultimately, right? Sure. And of the right amount. I mean, there absolutely needs to be a balance between, you know, you don't want innovation to be stifled, but at the same time, you cannot expect big tech to police on their own, right? That's uh, uh, not been successful in the past few years. And that's because they're not equipped to do that. <laughs> and uh, there is a huge conflict of interest. So we need to have outside independent agencies and though governmental involvement and also local governments, you know, uh, across um, the world to be involved in terms of deciding how they want to use AI, how they want to bring technologies to their communities. They need to have a say. And I think that builds trust because then they feel like they have the control to decide how they want to use the technology. And we also see that with social media, right? Yeah. Uh, this uh, bias amplification that we've seen in the last few years in the name of free speech, it has been an extremely toxic environment. And now, you know, with its reaching uh, the Capitol Hill, uh, suddenly everybody is <laughs> saying that this is not okay. But as a woman online, as a person of color online, I mean, I face so much toxicity. It's just every day, it's relentless from day one, you know, anonymous trolling. And that's because human communities are not built on anonymous free speech with no accountability. Right when uh, uh, you take any society, people's behaviors have consequences. <laughs> you know, it has consequences on the roles they occupy in that society. It has consequences in the culture the society sets. So that aspect is completely missing in social media because you have this artificial cover of anonymity, which sure. gets people to also be disconnected. I mean, not just that. Uh, you know that they're doing it uh, in a way just to create havoc. They may believe that they're doing it for the good of society because they're so disconnected from yeah. other groups. And they are also in um, emotional turmoil because there's toxicity all around. So I think just saying that, oh, there is free speech and speech can counter speech. People can just argue. It doesn't work that way because it, we are not an equal society. Uh, our voices are historically silenced and continue to be silenced. And we see a huge amplification of silencing on social media. I, it breaks my heart that so many women don't want to be online and I don't blame them because it is not a healthy environment. And it's rare when, when you see like a, a big number of followers and then you see really uh, uh, positive vibes in the messages and the speech. And this is uh, how we are, like in many episodes, we ask these questions about social media uh, explicitly because people are thinking that it's a freedom. But in the same time, I think you, you highlighted very well that uh, the silence of the society for decades is, uh, is it just flipping in another way uh, by being uh, uh, in front of, uh, you know, your, your laptop or your device and no one know about you, so you are free to say whatever you want, and no one give you any, uh, you know, sanctions or punishment or whatever. And it's really hard for vulnerable children, teenagers, women, as you said, uh, and many, many uh, other aspects of people, old people as well in other contexts. So you, you see that, and we say it, we talk about this with Kay Firth Butterfield about civilization, and it was our first uh, episode, especially in this podcast, and she said, she talked about the fact that people, unfortunately, till now are not civilized. And that's why maybe this is the one reason that social media is not bringing the, the bright side. It can bring the bright side, right? And many conditions it, it brings, for sure. Because we, we find a lot of people helping each other, connecting with family and with friends, even having more, more relationships, but uh, worth and wealth, uh, wealthy 
relationships, right? Not the fake one and all the as other aspects. And, and for me, I'm really wondering about uh, vulnerable um, uh, children and teenagers, because a lot of research, and especially in the United States, show that even suicide uh, increase for women and for girls, especially for girls. And it was like, it's, it's shock, but in the same way, when you observe, and we did a lot of research to analyze the tweets and on Facebook, the comments in some way, and it's really hard to accept what everything that it said. And sometimes you feel like I'm connected, right? And especially for young people, I am connected. And, and then one day start, people start saying bad things to you. And it's yeah. very hard to handle it. For me, from, even from my age, it's very hard to handle it. How about someone who, have, who is a children or a teenager? Absolutely. I think uh, we'll uh, view social media as the way, you know, the way we viewed cigarettes, right? So in the 60s, and so, you know, it was okay, and it was the fashionable thing to do. And then, uh, you know, we look at the ill health effects. And here, there's a lot of terrible health effects if, you know, it starts affecting your emotional well-being and mental well-being, as you said, uh, uh, the rates of suicide, especially with the pandemic and the further disconnectedness that uh, many vulnerable people find uh, on top of it, the toxicity of social media can be very harmful, right? And that's where we need to go back to first principles in what makes a civilized society, like you said, right? And how to create some ground rules to encourage that behavior because humans are, after all, we are social beings and we are also driven by reward, right? If there's a reward system that encourages good behavior, you see everyone doing that. Whereas in social media, it's the other way. It's reward, bad behavior is rewarded. That's considered uh, the norm. That's considered uh, what big influencers do. Uh, so they are held as shining examples. And I think that's the uh, disease of Silicon Valley. Uh, we need, I mean, that's not hospitable to women, that's not hospitable to underrepresented communities. And that's not also good for this earth and for future of technology. Uh, I feel like we need to kind of do some path correction here. Uh, so we, we, are, we, we start talking about many aspects as a concerns of the, uh, of the technology since you are talking about AI ethics and trust technology. L let's dive deeply on the part of machines dark side. So what are your thoughts about emotional robots and machines and how uh, can we protect our people against any type of manipulations? Like we start talking about little bits, but this is one specific topic. Yes. You know, when we think about... Uh... Uh, emotional manipulation by machines, we tend to think of like Terminator style, right? A humanoid, I mean, that's autonomous, that's able to, you know, know everything about you and then, uh, uh, right, uh, be able to manipulate or do harm. Uh, but then we don't have to get all the way there, right? We are already in an era of enormous manipulation and that's what we see. So many people being now in an alternate reality for believing these conspiracy theories, for believing uh, in terms of, I mean, completely baseless uh, ideas, right? But that's happening because of the recommendation algorithms. If somebody can never come out of that uh, whirlpool, they're being fed more and more of that. And their friends or whoever they're connecting with online is also believing in that, that creates the community, right? And people who study cults are, uh, you know, for them, this is very familiar. This is the formation of a cult. But the problem is now with social media, we are seeing cults at a massive scale. Yeah. And because that's because it's very easy to now recruit new members to the cult. And the ones who end up getting recruited are vulnerable to begin with, right? Because uh, there's also studies done how those who are emotionally vulnerable or have gone through trauma or abuse in the past are also vulnerable to getting sure. sucked into cults. And the problem is now social media is enabling this at a massive scale, even if that's not their uh, prime, you know, they're not doing it willfully, but the thing is the recommendation algorithms that are blind to the, uh, whether something is misinformation or a fact, 
whether they're blind to whether this is toxic or harassment or an attack versus a benign tweet, you know, those matter, right? And having blindness, I think, is the uh, at the core of the problem with this technology. You cannot be blind to humanity. You cannot be blind to the effects of this technology, right? The algorithms need to incorporate that. And I think that's the starting point, right? Broadly for any AI algorithms we are designing, we have to take into account if I run this at a massive scale, you know, it's now not just run on a few people, right? It True. is literally billions. So people can't imagine the effects at that massive scale, right? I'm sure those who are, uh, you know, in the early days of social media, no one expected this to devolve into something this terrible that we see today. And, and I think that's why we need social scientists, we need anthropologists, those that people who, you know, that's their expertise and we need to bring them more into Silicon Valley and uh, plan ahead, right? We need to be ahead of the curve, whether it's the virus or <laughs> a viral media, True. like, you know, we have to uh, be always ahead of the curve and that's what will dictate our future. And if, if we take like one example as Facebook, I remember myself, I was like just finishing my PhD at that time. And, and since I'm, uh, I'm far from my family, one of my friends, uh, a PhD as well, she told me, you, you need to have an account because you will talk to your family, cousin and everything. I remember myself struggling with this and saying, I will never have an account mm -hmm. because I know where he will go. He will take, like, it's very important to make, make people talk. And then once they are, they are really comfortable with the mechanism of talking and connecting and everything, they will, they, you will know everything about them. So I observed this for, you know, at that time, because I, I'm, I was in my PhD at that time, I was saying, oh my God, it's a brilliant idea. But, but it's a brilliant idea if it's only taken in order to create the relationships, the right relationships, right? And to make this connection healthy, right? But if it's not, and I was not predicting that it was not, but I said, if, if it was not, it will be a, a something very dangerous in the future especially when he will take all this material as, as data for those people who are really enjoying the freedom of social media and he will take it in another way. I didn't know that he will do it, but I said, oh, there is a possibility, right? And you know, as a researcher, we always try to think from different perspectives and we are not here only to see the positive side. We are here also to, to think and to define the negative side, not only to define it, but in order to find the solution to erase the negative side, right? Or to reduce it? I mean, ultimately you cannot have an algorithm that's blind and neutral in a, an unfair True. world, in an unjust world, <laughs> because that will only amplify uh, the already injustice and uh, inequality that's in our societies. So this phenomenon of big getting bigger, that's what has made social media, right? That uh, few influencers get all the power and all the uh, followers and uh, they wield that uh, many times to very harmful consequences and that's the other thing too uh, the way we humans are conditioned i mean this helped us you know during our early days of evolution because if there was any danger you had to quickly react right if there yeah. is uh, uh, you know uh, of course predators you had to uh, be aware of that. But then that is now in social media, that's terrible because now you know, people are perceiving danger, they're not trusting each other. And that's what is creating the cycle of hatred. So only hatred gets, gets more hatred and that gets amplified because people are engaging with it. And this happens also with trolling, right? Like, uh, you know, when I, uh, I mean, I've deactivated my Twitter account because of a huge mob attack that I received uh, in December. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that attack and with so many attacks, because people are engaging with my tweets that talk about yeah. diversity and inclusion, that talk about the need to root out sexism and racism, you know, they're specifically shown to trolls that engage with it. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So again, this is a blind algorithm, the recommendation algorithm thinks, okay, like this person is interested in this tweet, let me show them. 
but then that creates more and more toxicity for me and there is no way to control that you know there is no safeguards there is uh, no way for me to say uh, you know i'm i want to block all uh, people who are attacking me right I, I, those guardrails don't exist yeah 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 social media it's 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 very hard as you said i think you said uh, that maybe we have to take two step back and to think and define things maybe differently uh, in order to, 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 to find the solution to all this uh, issue that we are talking about. Uh, let's talk about your uh, one of the articles that highlight a brilliant work that you did with your team uh, in Caltech. It was published in the MIT Technology Review by Karen Hao and uh, the title, it was AI has cracked a key mathematical puzzle for understanding our world. And I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I appreciate when I read this research. <laughs> so I keep in my mind this part. And we are really curious now to highlight it for all our audience to know more about this great work that you did. Thank you, team, for sure. and, uh, uh, you know, and in that particular case, uh, you know, there was the goodness of social media, right? So in the sense, I tweeted about this article and then uh, MC Hammer, you know, picked up. Uh, he's known to promote uh, scientific works that he thinks are important and exciting. And that, you know, created more awareness around the work. So that's an example of what social media can This is be. the positive side. Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, so really uh, grateful to see all the attention that's uh, given to this work. And to me, I, I think this is, again, a fundamental question we want to solve, right? Like in the umbrella of AI for science that I was talking about, uh, one important aspect is how do we replace traditional methods for scientific simulations with AI? Because scientific simulations require supercomputers, right? If you want to simulate uh, the climate for this world, you know, how is the climate change going to happen, right? What can we expect? That's huge simulations, right? And the reason why they're so difficult to do is because trying to model how fluids move in turbulent regime is extremely complex. You know, you may have seen like, uh, right, uh, the movement of fluid with all the eddy currents and whirlpools. So being able to recreate that is uh, hugely expensive because there are many scales of it, right? Yeah. There's uh, uh, like local eddies and then there are bigger flows. There is global correlation because the, you know, there is the par particles moving uh, here is very, right, dependent on the particles, right? Uh, also you know, that are not just nearby. So you have these uh, large scale, long range correlation, you have multiple scales and uh, you, for simulation, you have to do lots of brute force calculations, what people call direct numerical simulations. And that's how traditional methods have worked. Uh, but now the question is, can machine learning uh, understand this underlying structure Right, and reduce the computational load and be able to speed up these calculations. Because if we can do that, then we can quickly design maybe new aircrafts, right, for different wind conditions or drones with mm -hmm. all kinds of different uh, uh, shapes and uh, weight and capabilities. So quickly, rapidly, we can uh, design um, new settings. We can you know, predict uh, our climate change, which, you know, is so important for our planet better. So there's so many aspects we can do better if we can have faster simulations. And that was the motivation that got us to considering this fundamental problem, right? Like Navier-Stokes is uh, considered one of the most important and popular partial differential equation system. And that's what yeah. models these turbulent fluid flows. And our machine learning framework, you know, if you look back at it, it's so simple, right? But so elegant. And it's also capturing the right inductive bias in terms of what should a solution to this partial differential equation look like, right? So we have domain experts, you know, Andrew Stewart and Kaushik Bhattacharya, for my colleagues at Caltech and collaborators on this project, who bring in those decades of knowledge on traditional
additional methods for PDEs, right? And that's so important because we want to look at how how are humans inspired to design these algorithms, right? And can we bring that into our designing our machine learning methods, our neural network architectures? What aspect should it incorporate? And that's when this concept of neural operator was born. And what it says is it should not be dependent on a specific grid structure of points that you are evaluating or a specific resolution, right? Because the underlying physics is there at all resolutions. So, you know, if you are only querying at a certain set of points and you want to evaluate at other points, you should be able to do that. Yeah. And so we want to capture the invariance that's there across different grid points and be able to capture the fine scale structure of these you know, eddy currents and stuff, which, which is what makes this complex. And so we designed uh, going away from a standard neural network, which only fits one function, right? If I give you one PDE, you can, with a standard neural network, learn to fit it well. But instead, we are now having this neural operator design for a whole family of uh, functions, you know, the family of Navier-Stokes. And so it's able to learn this mapping from this high dimensional input to output uh, because we take inspiration from Green's function, which is fundamental to solving linear PDEs. And our intuition is if you now compose many layers of it with nonlinearity, you can solve any general PDE. Amazing. And that's what uh, created the neural operator. And my questions, I will not ask the question about how many people was involved with because you said it's many expertise, actually. It's not about people, but also about expertise, so people plus expertise. But my question is more how long it takes in order to have, let's say, the first step of the achievement, not all the achievement, at least the first step. Yeah, yeah. I would say it uh, was roughly uh, a year uh, by the time we got to publishing that paper, right? Although. We had published uh, some preliminary versions of the neural operator okay. uh, using um, a different arc neural network architecture. And there we had seen some results, but it was not still beating, uh, you know, it was not up to par with traditional methods, right? So we had, we were seeing challenges and then we had to go back and fix that with the Fourier transform, which again comes from the inspiration of traditional methods. You know, having spectral solvers is uh, such a classical approach the power of Fourier transform for uh, capturing uh, these kinds of functions is great. And that's where right, we want to deviate again from how people use neural networks for natural images or speech or, uh, you know, or looking at language. Right? These have diff some different properties compared to those domains. So rethinking the design again to suit the scientific domain, to suit these class of PDs, uh, that was the additional aspect. So looking back, yes, all those kind of nicely fell into place. And what yeah. uh, I'm impressed is its simplicity. Uh, but then, yes, when you're going through the path, <laughs> it's always, right, the best ideas are the ones that are obvious once you've discovered them, right? Those are the elegant ones. Uh, because if I can't easily explain it, if I can't uh, make sense <laughs> of it, most likely... Correct. That uh, not uh, going to be impactful. So I it, 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 it's, it's a great uh, work for sure. And my question, why about the time? Just to explain to the young people that it's not something that it's come on one week, two weeks. So, <laughs> so there, is, there is steps and there is a vision and there is a belief and there's many other aspects and there is a hard work for sure, right? Absolutely. So, and the research uh, teach us, right? to have all these aspects, otherwise we will stop after a couple months. And the idea of we keep going, we keep going, we keep believe, and for sure we put the effort to achieve, right? And the mind and the and brilliant intelligence and whatever in order to achieve it and the mathematical equation for sure, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> you're you're uh, you know, right on spot, Lovna. I think that's so important to have that perseverance and even though I say a year, there is so much of other buildup, right? Like there's decades of expertise that I mentioned yeah. that uh, my collaborators have. And, uh, you know, in my team, the machine learning for 
PDs we've discussed uh, quite a bit uh, in the years before, right? And, and many times uh, we felt uh, earlier that uh, doing a standard approach, like taking a neural network, fitting one function, to me, didn't, it was the right approach because yes, you know, on the kind of immediate one, you get some solution, you could maybe publish a paper, but in the long run, that's not the one that would have an impact, right? Because the ultimate goal is to replace traditional solvers. And for that, you need the flexibility also with the machine learning method to be able to change parameters, to be able to change grid points where you want to evaluate. Uh, all these aspects should be there. And until kind of we hit upon that, <laughs> I was not uh, encouraging uh, right, my students to pursue publishing a paper, right? Because that's the other important thing I think end people should realize. You know, if you're aiming for only low hanging fruits, you know, especially those low hanging fruits that in the long run are not the right solution, then you're wasting the efforts, right? I mean, yes, you know, you need to build up a path and you need to start with different sub goals that are reachable, but they should lead ultimately, you know, down the path that will give you a bigger reward and a bigger impact. And that's something that I always encourage students to think about. And it's hard because, you know, when uh, you don't have the awareness of the entire field and what's been done, it's hard. And that's why I think it's important for them to have good mentorship and sure. bounce their ideas with others, you know, talk to mentors from different areas and start building that awareness of uh, where the field is. And, and we will have a question for you as a mentor later because we want to learn more and probably um, uh, uh, take benefit of this discussion for our young audience and from your experience. But before that, we talk about disruption. So disruption is something that now for the last five years, we, 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 we know more about it, right? But I think in big corporate, they didn't handle it as tech company. Uh, I think tech companies are investing millions of dollars either in AI, but also in disruption, right? And NVIDIA is one of them as well. Now, now the question is how, from your expertise, but also from your experience with this great corporate as well, how we can encourage the other ones to, uh, to, 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 to be more disruptive and embrace this new era of exponential technology? Yeah, Lovna, I think disruption, you know, positive disruption, yeah, right, positive, will quickly right. uh, move uh, in terms of technological innovations and uh, always thinking in terms of what the future is, right? Like not being complacent and saying, okay, we've reached this milestone, it's all good. In the marketplace, you know, in the commercial world, it's so important to be an innovator rather than a follower because yes. ultimately, you know, by following us in the short run, maybe you can make some level of profit, but then uh, you're, you're always in the danger that uh, somebody else is going to disrupt you and move further ahead. So, and that's where NVIDIA has been such a great role model for positive disruption, uh, all the way back from uh, when, uh, you know, graphics accelerators, there were so many companies, right, that had mushroomed and, uh, in the 2000s, uh, um, what separated NVIDIA from all that crowd was to look at how to make GPU programming accessible to more yeah. people, right? Uh, that, and that's what led to the birth of CUDA. And in fact, the Wall Street didn't view that favorably. <laughs> you know, Jensen, uh, you know, our CEO, Jensen Hong, likes to tell the story of how, uh, you know, Wall Street, uh, was against CUDA in the beginning because it felt like, oh, you know, you should just be focused on, you know, getting the best graphics accelerators. Why bother about, uh, you know, making the programming easier, right? Uh, because it's a short-term goal, people with only a short-term vision will not see the huge impact that CUDA sure. had ultimately because, you know, you could then expand beyond graphics accelerators to scientific computing and ultimately to AI, you know, because these primitives were built, we had all the matrix operations that were accelerated and ready to be used. And then, you know, that came upon a, a great use case for that was AI, right? But looking back, you know, when you build those kind of platforms and capabilities, 
it's not always possible to expect what are the use cases. Yeah. And uh, by creating good abstractions, creating a community to adopt this platform, uh, I think it's an important aspect of disruption because then you're expanding you know, your customer base, you're expanding who uh, can contribute to this technology and use this technology, right? So doing that in a sustainable way is important. And that's what we see as one great example of disruption because it's come from a lot of perseverance. It's come from building a great foundation. It's come from uh, enabling others to uh, use the power of GPUs, right? So those, I think, aspects are uh, what I see with NVIDIA that has been uh, hugely- and, and, and the example that you, you shared that it's public one about your CEO, it, it showed the example of the CEO who have generally a vision and the other ones who are exponential and have a long-term vision. Yeah. There's a big difference because being bold in, in the business is very important and having a long-term vision in AI and technology is very, very important. And this is what was the last probably conference of John McCarthy uh, and I was privileged to attend one of them. And yeah. he said that uh, uh, what little like what what we didn't uh, uh, do well it was we, di we didn't have a long-term vision about ai and once we understood because at that time they understood after a couple year uh, it it we, we start being fast right but if we start at the beginning 50 years ago we will achieve too much you know so he said it's very important with technology especially with ai to have a long-term vision and not a short or mid you know uh, term a vision because it's very important to um, invest and to see the target and to uh, and to visualize the target and once you said about community it's very important this advice for company because when they have this community they expand the disruption mindset in a positive way, as you said. And this is why we talk about disruption, empathy, and trust. Uh, it's very important to build the trust. Otherwise, there is no sense. And when we bring disruption, generally, it's something that it's hard to understand because disruption means something different that I don't know. So you need empathy. Otherwise, no one will, 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 will want to make effort, right? And believe on it and, and get involved. And it's very important, the advice that you give in, in this way, uh, Anima. With more than 50,000 young people empowered in time of pandemic and uncertainty, we are grateful to our remarkable guests with exponential experiences and from great organizations such as Amazon, World Economic Forum, Harvard, Google, Berkeley, and more. Thank you to our great audience and keep tuned for this new episode in the unique AI channel of trust by AI Exponential Thinker.